0: Greetings again, we are continuing our studies or readings from the book What is Man? Adam, Alien or Ape? And in the last episode, we looked at the first half of chapter 3 and we are now going to complete the reading of chapter three uh, by considering the second half. In the first half we were thinking mostly about the search for extraterrestrial life or especially extraterrestrial intelligence and seeing that it was actually getting nowhere. And that as far as we could see, humanity is unique in the universe. We do not know for sure, but in terms of intelligent life, there is no sign of anyone else out there. Uh, But in this uh, second part of the chapter, we're going to consider the situation of Earth. Having asked, is man unique, <clears throat> we can now ask is earth unique? And so we're going to look at Earth Designed for Life question mark. We begin with a subheading uh, which is Backlash. So much for SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Let's return to Earth. A proverb that doesn't yet exist in the English language, but probably ought to, runs as follows Where there's a lash, there will also be a backlash. If we assume that hordes of rocky exoplanets do indeed exist throughout the universe, something of course we have questioned earlier in this chapter, a new question arises what exactly does it take for a planet to nurture and sustain life? What is needed to allow the development and survival of a teeming biosphere, such as we find on Earth. An increasing number of authors and scientific commentators are fueling a backlash against the idea that life must be common in the universe, pointing out that stringent conditions must be satisfied for planetary life to exist. I am not here referring to the fine-tuning of the laws of nature without which a life-sustaining universe could not exist. We'll consider that in the next chapter. I'm thinking rather of the physical environment that makes Earth just right as a home for living creatures. While Mars and Venus, for example, are just wrong in this regard. The backlash actually takes two forms. Firstly, many who are metaphysically committed to the existence of alien civilizations have offered reasons why they remain undetected. Secondly, there are others who believe that Earth is such an unusual even unique planet that the likelihood of life arising elsewhere is remote. An absorbing example of the first is a book by the respected and well-qualified writer Paul Davis published in 2010 and dedicated to SETI pioneer Frank Drake. It is entitled The Eerie Silence Are we alone in the universe? In chapter 2 he asks the question life, freak sideshow or cosmic imperative ignoring other possibilities such as divine creation or even alien invasion he plumps for a cosmic imperative the belief that in the course of time life will inevitably appear on myriads of earth-like planets throughout the universe he does however sound a cautionary note the fact that a planet is habitable is not the same thing as saying it is inhabited He also recognizes that to justify the cosmic imperative requires a plausible scenario to explain the fortuitous undesigned origin of life from non-biological chemicals, acknowledging that no such scenario yet exists. If the probability of such an origin is zero, then no matter how many zillions of bio-friendly planets there may be in the cosmos, the cosmos will be barren of life. So far, so good. But sadly, then, Davis commits the common fallacy expressed by the syllogism 1. Life exists on Earth 2. Life on Earth arose by spontaneous chemical reactions. Three, therefore life must exist on Earth like planets throughout the cosmos. Four, therefore life is a cosmic imperative. But the only justification Davis can offer for uh, proposition two life on Earth arose by spontaneous chemical reactions, is that perhaps there exist as yet unknown higher laws of nature that might explain the chance origin of the complex information and organization on which life depends. This isn't science, of course, but rather a metaphysical scheme in which creative powers are attributed to nature itself that's pantheism or to an unknown supra-scientific agency that's deism uh, but never, of course, to a personal god who created man in his own image which is theism Subheading Anian Magic Returning to the title of his book, Paul Davis, having embraced the cosmic imperative, must explain in wholly natural terms why there is an eerie silence. If we are not alone in the universe, why do we seem to be? His curiously titled chapter, Evidence for a Galactic Diaspora, actually offers no evidence, whatever, for the existence of alien civilizations. What it does is speculate for 24 pages on why we have no evidence. Possible reasons offered include the idea that advanced galactic civilizations are already in active communication with one another using a kind of GWW, that's Galactic World Wide Web, but we just haven't noticed it yet. Alternatively, the problem could be that aliens were in the communication business long before the solar system was formed, so we weren't around when it was in fashion. Or yet again, mankind is ahead of the game and we will have to wait for extraterrestrial civilizations to catch up with us. It could be a long wait. Put less flippantly, these ideas boil down to the possible existence of a limited cosmic window of opportunity during which communication between or space exploration by alien races might have occurred in the past or might yet occur in the future. Only if we happen to live within a certain time window will we be able to gate crash such a party. In a further chapter titled Alien Magic, Davies examines yet another possibility. Alien technology may be so advanced that we wouldn't recognize it if we saw it. We see here another unintentional uh, echo of biblical wisdom in the arguments offered by skeptics. For writing to the Romans, another Paul, Paul the Apostle, accuses the ancient world of just such a failure. In this case, their reluctance to recognize The handiwork of God in the created order. He writes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, unbelievers, so that they are without excuse. The awesome divine technology revealed by modern science in the world around us from the genetic code to cosmic fine-tuning and the laws of nature today go completely unrecognized as such and are attributed instead to chance and accident. However to be fair Paul Davis is wise enough to acknowledge the possibility that we don't hear from our cosmic next door neighbors because in spite of the multitude of exoplanets the aliens simply aren't there. For example, he examines a theory proposed by Brandon Carter that the time required for intelligent life to arise by chance even on an hospitable planet may exceed the duration of the habitable zone around its star. This duration is estimated at around 5 or 6 billion years which is far short of the 200 billion years it allegedly took for intelligent life to appear on Earth. Carter concludes that life on earth must be a statistical fluke and davis adds quotes if carter is right then earth is a very rare exception and the emergence of intelligent beings like humans is a freak event close quotes having embraced the cosmic imperative of course davis must conclude that carter is somehow wrong but at least he gives him a fair hearing. Subheading entitled The Privileged Planet. The second kind of backlash is less common but held with equal fervor. In a book entitled Lucky Planet Why Earth is Exceptional and what that means for life in the universe, geologist David Waltham presents an interesting thesis that the Earth has enjoyed a rare and possibly unique stability of climate, allowing life and the whole biosphere to evolve at a safe and leisurely pace. The back cover blurb puts it thus, the earth may have had four billion years of good weather purely by chance. We are on a rare planet where all the bad things that could have happened to the climate have fortunately cancelled each other out." Close For example, Waltham argues that a growing intensity in the sun's energy output over billions of years has been offset by a progressive decrease in Earth's atmospheric carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that retains heat on Earth's surface. The net result is a thermostatic balance that kept Earth's temperature within the limits needed to sustain life. The book is an ingenious and well-argued narrative But it depends heavily on speculation and the occasional circular argument, as when oxygen produced by flourishing organisms is said to stabilize the climate to allow organisms to flourish. Dissenting from this lucky planet approach, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards in their magisterial work The Privileged Planet argue that Earth is special not only because it is habitable but also because it is ideally suited for scientific observation and inquiry. They conclude even more mysterious than the fact that our location in the cosmos is so congenial to diverse measurement and discovery is that these same conditions appear to correlate with habitability. This is strange because there is no obvious reason to assume that the very same rare properties that allow for our existence would also provide the best overall setting to make discoveries about the world around us. It cries out for another explanation. Subheading, water, water, everywhere. But let me approach the privileged nature of planet Earth in a more amusing way. Everyone seems to agree that without water there could be no life on Earth or anywhere else. In searching for extraterrestrial life, the first thing astronomers look for is water. Few people outside the cast of Star Trek expect to find living lithospheres or vital signs in vapors. A lithosphere is the outer solid shell of a rocky planet. But water, though not itself alive, is a potential host for all manner of life forms, even though, as I explained in my earlier book, Who Made God?, it presents serious problems for the origin of life. Since water disrupts the chemical linkages needed to build DNA or protein molecules. Water has some unique properties such as the decrease in density that occurs as the temperature drops from 4 degrees to its freezing point. This means that water freezes from the top downwards generally leaving liquid water below the ice Where marine life can survive as long as oxygen is not depleted there. Uh, Water is also a solvent for a huge range of other substances many of which are partly ionized in water into positive and negative ions facilitating all manner of chemical reactions and processes including those involved in living organisms. Water vapor is also important, acting as a powerful greenhouse gas and creating the hydrological cycle of evaporation and rainfall. As far as we know there can be no life on the planet devoid of liquid water. You can find an extended discussion of water and its benefits to planetary life in Michael Denton's book, The Wonder of Water. But, and in brackets I add in English, my apologies to translators, close brackets, but water is also an acronym for some of the other key requirements for planetary life. Namely, the right kinds of weather, atmosphere, temperature, environment, and repulsion. W-A-T-E-R. Firstly, consider weather. Although life is maintained by the hydrological cycle, it is easily destroyed by seriously bad weather, such as catastrophic floods and the effects on Uh, weather of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and meteorite impacts. Secondly, the right kind of atmosphere is also vital for planetary life to survive. This includes a just right level of oxygen. Too much is poisonous, too little is fatal, Um, unless you're an anaerobic microbe the presence of carbon dioxide to support blood life and stimulate breathing in animals, the absence of poisonous gases such as sulfuric acid found on Venus, excessive levels of carbon dioxide found on Mars and Venus, and hydrogen, helium, methane and ammonium found on Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Uh, those Those absences are very important. Most planets have poisonous gases in their atmospheres. Thirdly, temperature is what defines the so-called habitable zone around a star. If the planet's surface is too hot or too cold, life will respectively be either fried or frozen out of existence. An even narrower range of life-supporting temperatures is mandated by the need for liquid water. We have already considered the need for a planet to be in some sense thermostatically controlled if life is to survive over long periods of time. Fourthly, living things are dependent upon their environment for survival. This obviously includes temperature and water supply but it also includes ecological factors such as the presence of nutrients in soil the existence of food chains and protection from the elements. Fifthly and finally life requires the repulsion Of destructive influence such as ultraviolet light, Earth is shielded by the ozone layer, cosmic radiation largely deflected and trapped by the Van Allen belts created by Earth's magnetic field, and meteorite bombardment because our massive sister planet Jupiter attracts much of the space debris that might otherwise fall on Earth, with dire consequences for our biosphere. Yes, Earth does appear to be a rather special planet. It could also be unique in its ability to support life. Conclusion So where does this search for extraterrestrial life leave us? How does it help us answer the question, what is man? While much remains obscure, several things are clear. For whatever reason, the likelihood of our discovering extraterrestrial life is slim at best. If evidence for life, past or present, is found on Mars, we shall need to keep a careful watch on the way this evidence is interpreted, given the strong motivation the researchers will have for finding what they are looking for. But even if life on Mars were proven beyond reasonable doubt, it is far more likely to have arrived there from Earth, or arrived on Earth from Mars than to have originated separately on each planet again for whatever reason the likelihood of our detecting intelligent extraterrestrial life is remote but even if this were to happen it would actually prove nothing about man's origin the atheists might argue that the rise of multiple alien civilizations would suggest that each arose by the same accident of nature. But is it really logical to believe in multiple accidental coincidences? Would the data not fit better with a multiple and intentional act of creation by a single spiritual being? Occam's razor would surely favour a single cause. Optimists and pessimists appear to join forces in agreeing to ignore or dismiss any possibility of divine creation. It is an article of faith for them that life, whether on earth or anywhere else, is a lucky fluke having no intrinsic meaning. Purpose or teleology is excluded from their considerations ab initio in spite of the arguments advanced in chapter 2 of this book and in theological discourse generally that all our knowledge of the universe points to creation and the necessity of God rather than the imperatives of chance and accident. However, there is one area of agreement to which almost everyone subscribes. The study of the cosmos and the role of life within it should help us to answer the question, what is man? The reason for this is clear. The search is not ultimately for small flat bugs or even super intelligent aliens It is for our own roots as human beings. An extension of the search for human identity that we discussed in chapter 2. Paul Davis confirms this assumption. Can SETI be justified, giving the poor prospects of success? I believe it can for several reasons. First, it forces us to confront those great questions of existence that we should be thinking about anyway. What is life? What is intelligence? What is the destiny of mankind? As Frank Drake has remarked, SETI is in many ways a search for ourselves, who we are, and where we fit in to the universe. Yes, indeed, though Davis's logical slip is showing, it is not SETI that forces us to confront these questions, but rather the questions themselves that fuel and drive the SETI project as the quote from Frank Drake correctly implies. If this were not the case it would make much more sense to sit back and wait for advanced aliens to adopt a don't call us we'll call you approach. The totality of the effort described in this chapter with all the dedication, expectation, frustration and costs they involve can be traced back to man's need To know who and what he is. It might be unkind to compare this frenetic activity to the biblical Tower of Babel but there is a certain resemblance. The Babylonian builders declared, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They felt the need to establish their own identity independent of any relationship to God. And so unwisely, many do today.